Welcome to another episode of the ROI podcast presented by the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. I'm your host, Matt Martella, joined by the Associate Dean of the Kelly School, Phil Powell. Here on the show, our mission is to help organizations make better business decisions. So what does that mean for you? Well, as an organizational leader, we exist to make sure you are equipped with the latest in business leadership to make sure that your organization can become stronger and better. So if you have a question you're wrestling with as a leader, you'd love for us to uh, tackle as a topic. If you're just wanting to get a hold of some of our faculty and get some of their expertise, or you just know of a great guest for our show, send us an email to ROIPod. That's R-O-I-P-O-D at I-U-P-U-I.edu. So, so many small businesses right now are at this point of a very important decision. I mean, we understand and we can't imagine the impact that it's having on so many companies right now where you may be close to shutting the door because of COVID-19. And we just want you to know there can be another way. We want to make sure we get you as many resources as possible to make sure that that becomes the absolute last case scenario. So for those organizational leaders who who are on the fence with deciding whether they need to shut down or take out so much debt that they can't even think about retiring with any sort of dignity or be paying out this debt for the rest of their lives, we are bringing in a senior partner and founder of Crane & Company, a consulting firm specializing in crisis management, specializing in this very situation where companies are on the brink of shutting down and turning around that organization to become successful. I'm pleased to introduce Scott Maloney. Thank you so much, Scott, for being our guest here on the ROI Podcast. Scott, it's great to talk to you again. You know, you and I met when you were leaving Bloomington getting your MBA back in 2009, and you've, you've really done some great stuff since then. Um, I'm so glad we can get back together on the ROI podcast. Thanks for all you're doing for, you know, your clients and also for, for your school, um, serving on the alumni board. Anyway, Scott, um, you know, I, I've, as you and I have talked uh, recently, uh, you, you're doing doing some great work with Crane & Company, um, helping turn businesses around. And the stories you tell have some miraculous outcomes. And, and I think that our listeners really will value this at this time, especially those that are struggling with their business units. Okay, if we can rewind a little bit, take us back, tell us a little bit about your, what you've done since you left uh, the Kelly School, and then the genesis of Crane & Company. It's been a little bit of a, a roundabout path, which I think likens itself to my entrepreneurial background in some ways. Right after leaving Kelly, I was picked up by Pfizer Pharmaceuticals and worked out at their New York headquarters there and, and got to do a, a different smattering of financial and commercialization roles and was responsible for supporting their teams that launched new products in developing markets. It was my first real chance to see new product developed in new markets and, and new customers being brought into the fold. So it was, it was very much on the, the spear's tip of what they were doing. Having fallen very much in love with that, I transitioned to a small biotech called Human Genome Sciences right after there. And we were part of the finance team that grew them up prior to their acquisition to GlaxoSmithKline for a, a very sizable exit there, which was a lot of fun. And after that, I wanting to diversify my skill set a little bit out of the life sciences, I decided to give tech a try and, and joined the, the early crew at Living Social, 
And we took that daily deals business from a handful of crummy two-bedroom apartments in D.C. to 6,100 employees in 30 countries before its exit. It, it, it's been it's been a really interesting ride and a really adventurous ride. Crane and Company for me was at first just the the vehicle through which I could give back to my colleagues in the industry and provide them my advice and advising and consulting at early on in a, in a slightly informal sense. It, it grew from there pretty substantially, though, as, as I was able to work with companies on their financial underpinnings and their strategy around their partnerships and how they were partnering with their external environment and growing new markets. It, it, it became pretty clear to me that my interests were in solving some of the stickier problems, which certainly brought with it a lot of risk, but it was comforting in a lot of ways to my customers and my clients. So I, I kind of found myself naturally evolving to the, the turnaround space and what started as me advising and trying to be helpful in those particular cases became a very formal, very sizable consulting business now with offices in a couple of different cities. And we'll do turnaround engagements, about two to three concurrent engagements at any given time and over the course of a year between 20 and 30 different engagements. Scott, you've, you've talked to a lot of now customers who, have, who need the, the turnaround advice what what are major drivers of failure? I mean, what, are there some predominant things that you see characteristics of organizations or of leaders that that drive them to the point where they need crane and company services for turnaround on the edge of almost corporate death? Yeah, and, and it's interesting too. In this day and age with COVID nineteen, there's a pre COVID nineteen answer to that question and a post COVID nineteen answer. The- Post answer is, is somewhat straightforward, and that is when you have these kinds of large systematic breakdowns in a market and an economy, that it, it catches everyone by surprise. And to some extent, that's not a symptom of having done anything wrong or any level of mismanagement there. The, the pre-COVID answer, and, and what that gets to the heart of the issue here, Phil, around what's really driving that. There, there tends to be three pillars that we'll see most, most often. With some of our younger companies, these are newer startups that have just gotten some venture capital and are on their growth ramp for their revenue. There tends to be just a, a lack of appreciation for managing to the numbers. So a lack of appreciation for cash flow and their balance sheet and how they're actually financially underpinning that business when money from venture capitalists is seemingly raining from heaven. Um, they're running a good business otherwise, but they just don't have as crystal clear a view of the metrics and therefore the levers of adjusting those metrics that that one might want. So we'll see a little bit of that. Um, sometimes what another pillar we'll see this the second big pillar that we'll see is effectively older companies that are mid-market companies and what they've gotten themselves into is just shifting dynamics that they've failed to shift with, changing in their cost basis, changing the partnership landscape. And it becomes a challenge in some ways for them to readjust a business that in some cases might've been in the family for generations or might've been under management for now their fifth or sixth or seventh major CEO shift. It's hard for them to fundamentally change that business in quick ways, necessarily. And the the third big pillar for us and what we'll see for a lot of these turnaround cases are effectively less turnarounds with respect to something has gone wrong. There's not so much mismanagement, not so much the market has moved out from under them, but rather new interested parties are looking for a substantial increase or change to how they're operating. So you'll see otherwise 
good companies moving along at a decent growth clip or, or being able to support them, their, their teams, their companies, their customers just fine and maybe having done so for years. But you'll see the entrance of of PE firm, um, one of the big private equity firms, and you'll see the entrance of an acquiring party, like a larger corporation looking to make an acquisition. And part of their new interest is a ratcheting up of that business in its growth and its size and its scale and its reach, whatever the metric needs to be. And the company itself may not just be ready for that swift of a change. And the private equity firms seldom want to layer in their own management over and over again because they were in pretty lean operations themselves. So they'll look to firms like Crane & Company to do that for them. Scott, I want to talk to you about the specialty you guys have found yourself in where you guys come in, especially in organizations who may be on their last leg and you work really hard to make some help organizational leaders make really, really tough decisions that are ultimately going to help their business turn, turn back around, turn that you know downward trajectory back to an upward growth. So talk about how you guys found crisis management to be your specialty as a firm. I, you know, it's funny. I, I, I think about the very first moment where I realized we were going to proactively pursue that as a specialty. And it was after we were somewhat haphazardly in that space already. And, and I think a lot of it came back to the temperament that I brought to the firm and that I like to cultivate in my team. And that is extremely high levels of emotional intelligence and, and kind of that cool under pressure. Because at the onset, that's really what our clients need. There, there's a lot of programmatic changes and there's a lot of strategy and operational changes that come as step two and three and four and five but very often the first step is being able to be the cool head in a room that lacks them at that time for no fault of their own when the sky is falling it's scary we've all been there at some point but in a lot of ways that was the first entrance to for us into that turnaround market was realizing that we could walk into a very chaotic conference room full of executives that were scared and, and, and rightly so, I'd be in their shoes scared and provide them some level of calm and some level of very thoughtful next steps to focus the energy in that room because the, the talent is still there. The energy is still there. there. There just needs to be a focusing at that moment. So that also kind of parallels with our framework and how we think about turnarounds in a lot of ways. You know, step one for us really is to understand the problem and simply stop the bleeding. Like more often than not that it's as simple as that, even though those result in very, very large and sweeping changes that sometimes it's just comforting to have someone else do. And then therein lies our entrance into the situation. And that's a great spot because I want to ask about, you know, with all the emotions that surround, uh, you know, a pandemic or just not even without COVID-19, just uh, organizational market shifts or whatever the case may be. What is that very, very first step when your team comes in and you're coming to an organization that is, you know, just so in the weeds and their own thoughts and their own emotions? And uh, what's step number one you tell organizational leaders to start that change? Yeah, I think for what makes us different than a lot of firms, and I even look towards some of the very large consulting firms that we're increasingly competing against here. It, one of the things that they'll start with is the idea of just instilling best practices, coming in and instilling best practices. And I, I fundamentally get that, and I fundamentally appreciate why that's a, a good place mentally to start. But I think it ignores a really critical early step, and that is an appreciation down to the numbers as to how we got here in the first place. Because very often, a lot of these companies didn't do anything wrong on purpose. It was a slow sliding slope. It was that slippery slope argument. It was mistakes that were 
made that might have been obscure because multiple divisions were involved and not communicating. But nobody woke up that morning and said, I'm going to tank this company. And because of that, you need to come in and really understand how we got there. So our first step in a lot of cases, I mean, in addition to just showing up and being there and being supportive of them is really to dissect the status quo, even if that status quo, quite frankly, is a little bit terrible right now. So we, we really peel back the onion and get into the financial, the operational and the strategic metrics so that we actually will build into significant KPI dashboards and we'll do all of those individual pieces, even for a business that is pretty clearly in a little bit of trouble, but it's specifically so that we can have a very tangible conversation around what levers we want to pull and why we want to pull them. And then finally, how? How do we do that? And then once you've done all of those layered pieces, then I then I begin to agree with some of our uh, our peer organizations out there that it's time to start thinking about best practices, although we probably think about them much more customized for our clients and to make sure that it fits their specific business and not just all businesses in their industry. But, but, but to, to your question, I mean, we really do start with that base level layer because if you're going to start pulling on levers as a business professional, you had better know what the outcome of pulling on that lever is. You know, Scott, that's a great, uh, that's a great point. And that's what a great business acumen will get you and, and a good studying of the data and an objective perspective. You know, I think that the biggest issue, the biggest fear, the biggest, the hardest part about being in the heart of a turnaround and knowing that the business either has to shrink or really pivot in a radical direction to save itself is letting people go. Mm-hmm. So let's dive into that. So talk, talk to me about what's, when do you, when do you, what, what's a criteria for knowing that you've got to downsize a part of the organization? Um, how do you sequence that in the sort of uh, recovery? Is that, is that something you do first or second step? Is that something you do in the middle? And then how do you, I mean, if, if I'm a CEO, CEOs didn't get in their business to fire people. They got in the business to, you know, to let good people go. They got in the business to, to, to create value for customers. Mm-hmm. And, cust- you know, and your employees, they don't, that's the biggest fear they've got. Am I going to lose my job? So there's a psychology around it on both sides of that. That's just very difficult to implement and manage. Mm-hmm. So I guess back to my qu- sort of two, two-pronged question, how do you know when to let people go and how do you sequence that bigger decision? And then how do you implement that uh, being, being a senior leader? You know, it's, it's, it's a great point because it's probably one of the most emotionally jarring portions of this job when it starts to involve people. Because, I, you know, I think about it when I was leadership in major organizations. It, it's hard. You don't see just somebody walking in and out of the office. You see their small child who needs to buy shoes that next year for school. And you see the family vacation you want to take. It, it's more than just a person. So it becomes very personal. When it comes to sequencing those things out, that's one of those early metrics we try to get our hands around very quickly. And you know, looking at a invested capital kind of metric against those people and what we're spending every day, what we're reaping every day, and how the operational components stitch together. But when you have an organization that you desperately need to stop the bleeding, you need to make some pretty tight cuts pretty quickly. So as we look at those metrics and we establish where those cuts need to happen, whether or not it's weighting the different functions in the business from marketing to finance to sales to business development to R&D, whether it's putting a weighted measure against those or whether or not it's looking at areas of underperformance and just making a, a systematic decision to lose those sections, what we try to do and what we try to really instill in our clients is the fact that 
the only place you really lose control of this situation is when it's a death by a thousand cuts. And we've certainly seen organizations in the press before that will lay off a number of individuals, then do so again three months later, then do so again three months later. And, and I'm sympathetic very much to the, the plight of those organizations, but there's where we start seeing a lot of the problem fill you're hinting at of how do you keep the, the morale up in an otherwise kind of scary situation. So we actually advocate doing relatively deep cuts early on and, and doing those in line with the metrics that keep financial health in the business and not merely cutting to cut, but, but understanding that those cuts are going to feel abrupt. They're going to feel jarring at first, but it is far better to lay off 100 people today than 20 people every few weeks for five different rounds. So we, we try to instill that. Now, when it comes to our, our leaders that will work for those, the C-levels and all these organizations, you know, it, you're right. They, they got their heart in the right place. We, we may see bad press these days about our, our corporate leadership and wanting profits and things like that. But, you know, honestly, that hasn't been my experience. When, you, when you're sitting in the room, they actually care a great deal about not just the business, but the people that are in it, the people that make that business up. So it's hard for them to want to make any levels of cuts. But I think what it takes, and this really is leader dependent, so we have to work on our messaging as a company, and we have to work on our delivery and strategies as a company. But for some, it's about mitigating the impact to the business and mitigating the impact to the individuals. So perhaps more time will be spent up front to off-ramp those people in a way that is respectful and full of dignity and provides a good path for them to their next opportunity and a good path for the company to find some health again. Other leaders, it, it's the lesser of multiple evils argument that frankly can help quite a lot where none of us, myself included, want to lay anyone off. But if the laying off of, I mean, I'll make up an example, the laying off of 10% of our workforce saves 90%, our responsibility is not to risk that 90% that can be saved. And, and putting it in that frame and providing the metrics around there to justify comments like that and not just have them be qualitative provides confidence to those C-levels that are looking to make tough decisions in their organization because now they know that it's backed by the numbers. It has a reasonable chance of success, but they're no longer just thinking about the downside portion of it. They're thinking about the safety of the rest and, and actually protecting the family that they have built, whether that family be 10 employees or 10,000. On this, on this question, um, Scott, I'm going to ask a more academic question. You know, a lot of academic business types, uh, the literature criticizes American business against Asian that American they say American companies manage to the quarterly statement and Asian companies manage to the uh, five-year plan and we see in age in organizations where there's India Korea Japan we see a more of a concept of permanent employment and the thought is is that in in, in an organization where you have less turnover uh, less willingness to lay folks off even during a downspurt uh, you're going to be able to capture the long-term productivity of those workers. Um, and I, to back this up, I had a, a colleague, he did research on the, the recession of 1991, and he looked back and he found that only one out of every three layoffs was actually in the long-term interest of the Fortune 500 companies that did them. Mm -hmm. So what's given, you know, that's kind of the academic argument with, with a little bit of empirical data there, a little dated though, what and it's a criticism of American business of U.S. business. Given given your role and what you see in the front lines, what is your response to that to that argument? 
Yeah, it's it's an interesting argument. I think there is a lot of validity to the long term data behind having more steady employment and things of that nature. And and we, we need to, in order to have this conversation, table the shifting cultural dynamic of individuals that simply don't want a job for a long period of time, nor do they want to do the traditional up ladder in one particular functional role. So tabling tabling those individuals and, and saying that we can get a workforce that is excited about this particular idea. It, it really, I, I've seen the numbers, Phil, and I, I appreciate what we're saying in terms of the benefit of having done that. I think where the water's edge is in a lot of ways, and certainly where the rubber meets the road for us, is two areas. One, when we're doing any level of turnaround for these companies, the first move that we make is very often not to look at downsizing. And and as much as that gets the press and the headlines when X number of employees have been laid off from whatever big company, the reality is that's very seldom our first step because most companies, even companies that are really struggling, the relative amount of budgetary discretion that they have relative to the overhead cost of their employees is sufficient that you can make some pretty stringent cuts to programs before you're having to necessarily think about the cuts to people. Now, they do come hand in hand to some extent, but it's not a single lever to simply save cash by showing people the door. I I think by keeping that mentality and thinking about budgetary ways you can cut that don't necessarily involve people, you do instill this more long-run employment, this more permanent employment idea of making your employees advocates during a tough time instead of adversaries during this tough time. So that's one part of it. I think the other, though, that that makes it useful as individuals have, I don't know what the right word is, Phil, more transient roles where they're in roles for a few years and then explore something else, is it does bring a healthy level of innovation to a lot of our clients in terms of new ideas and transferable skills, sometimes from completely outside the industry that, frankly, have a lot of value, or at least a lot of value in the way we do business these days in in the United States. Uh, So I, I think there's that layer there. But as much as we're talking about the layoff component of turnarounds, I, I would argue that most solid practitioners of turnaround management for their clients don't start there, mostly because there is a benefit to keeping those individuals on. And the more you treat individuals as a number, the worse this process is going to be. And frankly, the less successful for the client. Nobody wins in that case. And unfortunately for a lot of organizations, you know, that becomes the necessary thing to do is they try everything they can. They try to cut back their budget as much as they can while protecting jobs and protecting people's lives. Yet there comes a point where some organizations do ultimately have to make the tough choice of, you know, considering who to let go or who to furlough or who to lay off. So when it comes to, you know, that stage in the game for organizational leaders, which no leader wants to do at all, you know, how should leaders approach informing their team or organizations of these impending layoffs? Um, And then the second part to that question is, how do they uh, continue to keep some sort of morale uh, level? You know, obviously morale is going to drop, but how do they still protect it from tanking totally and thinking everyone's going to get let go? It's, it's a good question. And, and it's one of those things that as much as this is a very difficult conversation and a very nuanced one, I mean, letting letting a division go or letting a few people out of a work group go is is hopefully never done in a very ad hoc fashion. but 
nonetheless, this is one of those places where transparency is king. You're, you're right that there's no way to keep morale up across the board when a company is genuinely contemplating if it'll be around the next year and hoping that it can create a strategy to change that. There's, it's a hard world to keep morale up in that case. What only compounds that is being obscure around what you plan to do. So we actually advocate for a lot of our clients and like all things, there's some nuance here, but we, we generally advocate for a lot of our clients that they just be transparent. And as soon as we're able to confidently say that there will be a three or five or 8% decrease in workforce as part of other larger changes to the business and other cuts to the business in pursuit of a turnaround solution, we advocate sharing that and then letting them know in the next few weeks that those decisions will be made tangible and we'll know who and how that works. Now, it, it feels cold in some ways to, to make a workforce aware of the fact that this is going to be happening, but it's actually really remarkable. And there's a lot of great research that has been published in HBR and other places that talks about keeping those kinds of decisions internal until you're ready to do every portion of that path. And the problem with that is secrets on that level and of that severity never remain secrets. And the crushing effect to morale that comes on the other side of having it leak that we may be doing 5% layoffs, or maybe it was 15, or your buddy down the hallway heard 25, that becomes a runaway train that becomes almost impossible to get in front of. And the morale damage alone is, is simply not worth it. So we, we try to advocate for our clients to be extremely transparent around what's happening, what the next steps are, and when to accept the next steps and when to expect those coming down the pipe. And then from our standpoint, we, we treat that with our, our leadership um, and our leadership at our clients that those, are, those don't get you off the hook. Merely telling a workforce that there will be a 5% cut and you will tell them in two weeks exactly where and how that will work, but you wanted them to be aware in the meantime, that's when they go to work. They're not off the hook in terms of having delivered their message. Now they need to meet that deadline. And that's actually one of the things that we are, are pretty adamant about with a lot of our clients is this will be hard. This will be programmatic. There will be decisions and, and messaging you will not want to give. But if at any time you shy away from that, if any time you obscure that, if at any time you shirk the duties of a responsible leader, um, that's going to have a real problem for how we're able to execute this turnaround. And we're going to need to address that differently. You know, to protect a lot of organizations that you work with and a lot of your clients, could you walk us through, you know, a case study or an example that you've used um, and helped an actual organization start to finish to navigate through some of their, you know, tough times or at the moment of where they really had to turn around from rock bottom? I'm going to have to stop just short of naming names, but I'll give you a very transparent uh, otherwise example of one of our clients. We do a lot of work in the life science industry across biotech, pharma, med device, getting into even ancillary services in the life science sector and health sector like payments and insurance. We had a, a biotech client, which was a fairly sizable one, and they were working in the oncology space. And they had just picked up about $75 million in venture capital. They had a compound in phase two. They, you know, all, all indications were that they were headed towards either an acceptance in phase three or some larger pharma company was going to take them out of the game. As they were going through this, they lost some of their marketing leadership, which was the original founding leadership. And then during that same period of time, they also had, and, and this was largely systemic risk to them. They didn't 
create it per se, but they had one of their largest investors have some serious financial problems and have to pull out on their investment that had already been committed and already been budgeted against. So here's this organization that was a rocket ship towards phase three in the clinical space and an acquisition conversation with numerous different partners suddenly had the rug pulled out from under them from a funding standpoint and needed to figure out what that meant for the organization and what that meant for their future and their partnerships and any kind of acquisition and their employees. It, it, it suddenly opens a lot of questions when you go from feeling like the grass is green under your very own feet to wondering if you're going to make payroll in the next three months. It, it, it's a very jarring situation. So we, we were brought in by their board actually to provide a little bit of guidance around what was happening and how best to deal with that. And, and like any other situation that, that we start with, like we had talked about earlier here, we try to get our hands on how we got here. And we try to get our hands on the metrics as they're working both before the bad situation and during the bad situation, because that informs what we need to do going forward. So we took a really hard look at their KPIs and how they were managing each one of their divisions, whether it be R&D or the corporate suite or finance or marketing or their early sales functions, they were starting to gear up in anticipation of things. And we, and we realized that they had a very, very rudimentary way of looking at the return on what any piece of capital was that was going into that business. And subsequently, it was very difficult to say whether a division was actually contributing as a revenue center or was a cost center and how they were booking it. And, and it, there was a, a financial confusion there. So if I were to ask the question, which of your five major programs, your research programs, has the highest probability of success and the highest revenue potential associated with it when accounted for against the costs of running it, they couldn't answer that. Now, when you've got tons of money raining from heaven, that's not a problem per se, but it is now for them. So we went through and we effectively reestablished management tools across the entire organization very quickly so that any, any line manager with two reports or the C-suite with hundreds of reports suddenly had unparalleled transparency to understand what portions of their business were working and costing, where money was flowing, where operational time was being spent, what partnerships were at different places in that partnership funnel. And it gave them a very transparent view of the world. And once we have done that, then we were able to readjust that and say, you know, for a model that no longer had $75 million in venture capital to spend, but now suddenly had 15 we could now programmatically prioritize what they were doing. We could look at their different research programs and not just put favorability statistics against them in, in, with respect to, I really like this one program and I, I don't know, the other one sounds interesting. That, that's qualitative. That's difficult for us to see success there because it's difficult to replicate. Now we were able to prioritize things based on the numbers the validity of the potential market, the interest by the partners and in early capital and sponsored research that was coming in, we were able to look at that relative to the costs, real costs that we're taking to support those programs and make some tough decisions as to which one of those programs may be more speculative or further off or frankly underperforming expectations and able to then make very thoughtful decisions as to which ones we were going to tie off and put on a shelf in terms of its future potential. So we turned five programs into two major research programs for them and save them the sufficient amount of capital for them to effectively almost break even at that point. We did some corresponding headcount changes with them on that respect. But then where our firm has an advantage, having been in the life science industry for such a long time, once we did that kind of step one, stop the bleeding, and step two, what we, we call it, right the ship, you know, is we're writing the ship to make sure that it now 
operates and functions and lives within the confines of its current resource environment. That third piece there is a little bit more nebulous, and that's how do we crawl back out of this hole? How do we grow back out of this area? And having done quite a lot of work in, in the industry of life science and tech and things like that at our firm, we're actually able to go out and then assist them with that. So we actually um, introduced them and put together a couple of partnership deals for sponsoring their research and for collaborating on phase three trials with a couple of larger pharma organizations. That actually re-injected a little bit of capital that allowed us to ease off of some of those program closures that we originally thought were going to be necessary. And that put them mostly back on the path to what they were doing. We certainly weren't able to replicate all that venture capital suddenly vaporizing, but we were able to open up some new channels for them. We were able to open up some new research partners for them, which partially offset the burden there. You couple that with right-sizing the programs and right-sizing the organization, and they were back in a healthy state, albeit a smaller one than what they started with, but all things considered, that was a death blow. That was a body blow. And now their biggest concern was simply being a little smaller and needing to go back to work. And that's not so bad. Finally, Scott, I just wanted to give you an opportunity uh, to just let our listeners know what you guys and your firm's doing um, for our Kelly alum. Yeah, it, it, it was actually it was something I was very inspired to do after hearing Phil here give a, a talk, a webinar recently, and it was after this whole COVID-19 nonsense had really hit the fan, and Phil was talking about the changes and how what that does for our economic landscape and what the impacts are in the long run and making some what I thought really insightful thoughts about what the future could look like. And, and one of the phrases Phil just said over and over was, you don't necessarily, and Phil, please forgive me, I'm going to butcher this quote altogether and paraphrase only, but it was something to the effect of everyone's able to help. They may not be flashy ways and it may not be frontline medical workers, which my God, if those are not heroes, I don't know what are. Um, It may not be that way, but everyone can help. And that actually really inspired me and kind of jogged my creativity a little bit and realized that yeah, I'm never going to be a frontline medical worker. I'm never going to be able to join those hero ranks necessarily in a productive way, but what could we do? And so actually I I pulled together the organization and we ran the numbers and we put together, we tightened our belts and we made some, some tough decisions. And we said that our goal is to be more approachable than we were in the past. If our goal was to be more accessible in the, than we were in the past, what can we do to tighten our belts and get there? And, and since Phil was my inspiration, we basically said anyone in the Kelly family, and, and gosh, I, I define that loosely. I mean, tell me that you, you were a Kelly student. Tell me you were a parent of a Kelly student. Heck, tell me you lived down the street from one of the university's campuses. I, I don't know that I care that much. But if you're in the Kelly family, we, we figured out a way to support clients in that family at cost. So what we're doing right now is if you're in that Kelly family, we've readjusted how we work as a consulting firm, readjusted our fees as a consulting firm and are offering turnaround management to the individuals, companies that need it at cost. And that's something that, you know, it's it's definitely a programmatic change for our business, but we're, we're delighted to wear Phil's mantle of everyone can help somehow. And this is a way we can help. Again, Scott Maloney, senior partner and founder at Crane and Company, a consulting firm here in Indianapolis specializing in crisis management. Be sure to check out uh, his organization. We'll put a link to that organization in our show notes. And for all those in our audience, we want you to know that you are a part of the Kelly family. This has been another episode of the ROI podcast presented by the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. I'm your host, Matt Martella, joined by the associate dean of Kelly School, Phil Powell. Here on the 
show, our mission is to help organizations make better business decisions. We'll see you next week.